0: The views expressed in this program are those of the participants, and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. Hi, Will. Ben.
1: How you doing? You call him Will? Why not? He's second in command of the ship, that's why not. I'm not Starfleet, I'm a civilian. When he's in here, he wants to be treated like a civilian.
2: Riker? I bet he sleeps in his uniform.
1: You only think that because he's your CEO, if you got to know him. Right. He's convinced Commander Riker doesn't like him. Why? Did you crash the ship into something? No, he just doesn't like me. He doesn't even know you. That's right. You should go talk to him. About what? Perhaps something you have in common. He likes jazz, poker, he's Canadian. Yeah? My grandfather was from Canada. There you go. Excuse me. i got to go talk to somebody. Good evening, sir. Lavelle.
2: Something I can do for you? No, sir. I just came to get another drink.
1: Is there something wrong with that? No. Actually, I, uh, what are you having?
3: Drink your nail. Good choice. I'll have one, too. My grandfather was
1: Canadian, you know. Really? Aren't you one, too? A grandfather?
3: <laughs> no, Canadian, sir. Canadian. No I grew up in Alaska. Oh, well, they both get a
1: lot
2: of snow. <laughs> yeah. It was good talking to you, sir. Yeah.
4: Good morning, London. It is Thursday, July 1st, 2010. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM, where we will
3: be with you from now until noon. No, oh, no, not right wing. Just right. Fade into colour, colour
0: into black and white, under the bedclothes.
4: And welcome to the show today on this Canada Day in the year 2010. And thank you for coming in today, Ashley, to look after the show and make sure that we're working on a holiday. Isn't that nice? <laughs> 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 yes, it is Canada Day. And by the way, 519-661-3600 is a number you can call if you have any opinions to share on our subjects today, which we will be talking about. Well, Canada is strong and free, is it? I'm few comments on that of course today is also the day that the dreaded hst kicks in and just a couple comments on that the larger issue today i think that we will be looking at is i guess you could say the changing character of canada in some ways but lessons that we may have learned from the g20 summit which of course has recently put canada on the world stage and robert i know you have some comments about violence and anarchy and Oh, Look I've, at the
3: future. I immersed myself in that particular issue, Bob. It was quite fascinating, the whole G8-G20 uh, circus.
4: Well, just from what little I've heard, I'm looking forward to hearing what, what you've got to tell us today because I'm sure it's not what most people have been that aware of. Uh, but it is Canada Day, and it's a statutory holiday. And, of course, uh, this Sunday, July 4th, is Independence Day in the U.S. So both countries are always sharing their individual birthdays very close to each other and one thing i noticed when i was doing research on just canada and canada's identity is that it's almost impossible not to mention the u.s when you're talking about the canadian identity and you and i had a talk about this earlier in the week i thought it was an argument well okay it was an (laughs) argument but it got me going because we were talking about the identity of a nation and you quite correctly said that what defines one country from another is strictly its set of laws and that's what a country is right—a different set of laws. So
3: now you capitulate the argument. No,
4: I—I'm I, <laughs> saying that that is a correct argument, but it's not what a nation, uh, a nation's identity is. Anyway, this is what I was been thinking about. Uh, you almost have to, of necessity, if you're going to identify one thing against another, you have to contrast it to whatever the other is. True. To create an identity. So in that sense, the identity. Is necessarily in contrast to other nations if two countries were exactly alike and Canada and the US are seen as being very similar to each other by a lot of other people around the world you know it would be impossible outside of geography to assign any really distinguishing characteristics between two countries that are a lot alike they might be seen as twins you you brought up another point history of a country that's certainly I think part of its identity History, tradition, culture. A lot of things. It's not just just laws that distinguish, but, you know, it it wasn't so much laws. You could have two countries with almost the same laws based on the same principles, but what really distinguishes them is two different jurisdictions.
3: True. Canada is one of those, because Quebec has different laws than uh, the rest of Canada.
4: So you could have two different governments on the same principles, operating essentially on the same principles. So... You know we look kind of alike i guess to most people outside of north america and but the canadians finding differences between themselves and americans is critical to establishing an identity and i think it's less about hating americans or, or or even loving them or whatever than it is about trying to etch out our own identity we've picked a lot of clips for today you've heard some of them and there, there are a lot of humorous clips about a comparison between canada and the united states and i find that i don't think there's a, a um, you know, you, we, a lot of people are saying, well, too many Canadians are hating Americans these days. Yeah. And there is that in politics. I mean, the left is the left in any country. <laughs> yes. Even American lefties hate America, so that's not really the distinction. But I looked up in the dictionary, Funk and Wagnalls defines identity as the state of being a specific person or thing and no other, or the distinctive character belonging to an individual. Then I went into my Ayn Rand lexicon talking about, he said, existence is identity, consciousness is identification. So a thing is what it is, its characteristics constitute its identity. That's what we were talking about, Robert. We were talking about characteristics, not the identity itself. Yes. And uh, until I saw that distinction, ah, there was the problem. And he says, a characteristic is an aspect of something that exists. The concept identity does not indicate the particular natures of each existence it, it subsumes. It merely underscores the primary fact that they are what they are. So, basically, it's almost based on a feeling in a way, too. It's a perception. How do you see a country? What is your feeling towards the country? I'm sure people may have considered Americans and Canadians as a different character a century ago than today so uh, you know and, and and i'm thinking of say for example um canadian historian joe armstrong who wrote mm-hmm. farewell the peaceful kingdom which almost speaks to your theme today are we a peaceful kingdom anymore but i think i concluded that a nation's identity relates most primarily to its culture and to its values which are not always you know you can't put them down on paper hard and fast all the time. But I think it's about the predominant human collective within any given country, and that the primary identity of a nation to me is whether that nation is a free nation or a not free nation. That's the big identity to me. And a character of a nation, you know, or its identity can change over time, even though the jurisdiction hasn't changed. So you got me thinking with that, uh, what you call an argument we had the other day. But um, I think it focused me a little more. So I hope um, the listeners today will appreciate our sometimes irrele- uh, irre- irreverent, rather, sometimes critical and sometimes appreciative look at Canada today. Now, of course, uh, another thing I just wanted to get off the table before we carry on, today is the watershed day for Ontarians in particular, the dr- the day the dreaded HST kicks in. If you've been driving around this morning, price of gas is up, well, 8%. Worked out perfectly. four plus. Yep. So, from now on, Ontarians are in harmony with the rest of Canada, and, you know, I hear a lot of complaints about the HST, and yes, we're paying more in taxes, but it's not because of the HST, and yes, we are going to have a lower standard of living and a loss of personal freedom, you know, I think a a 13% tax in total, in total is an obscenity in a country that thinks itself it's a, 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 a being a free country. So imagine the words I might use when when added to a 13% sales tax, we have income tax, property tax, and a whole bunch of other taxes we can't even think of because they're included in the price of a lot of things. And a lot of these taxes have outlived their original purposes and intentions,
3: but they never go away. Including the income tax, which wasn't that just for the fighting the First World War? Yeah, temporarily, a war
4: tax. Property taxes were originally meant to fund hard services to municipal property, like road sewers and, and, and property registrations. didn't go any further, and they were paid by property owners only. We had taxation with representation. That's a, there's a, an element of a free society's Wasn't character. Wasn't it also the fact that only property owners could have voted? That's correct. Hmm. See, I've, I, I, People think I'm crazy when I say this, but I don't think I have a right to vote municipally, because I'm a tenant now if i own property in the city that i paid direct taxes to the city on then i should have the right to vote and that's what's happened the franchise has gone to everyone but the but the responsibility stays with the property owner and so of course everyone else who's not a property owner feels free to vote with the other guy's money doesn't hurt as much but of course it all it does in the end so you know with the expansion of all municipal and government spending that's what it is in in non-governmental areas all of the justifications for income and property taxes just went right out the window. It just carried on, and now that's what we're doing. And as I said before on a show a few weeks ago, your name is Peter and you are Stone, because this country rob- works on robbing Peter to pay Paul, and the tax principle is blood from stone. They take whatever they can until you can't bleed anymore. So, you know, I'm afraid that freedom and democracy, too, the fundamental values associated with Canada, have suffered great setbacks of late. I noticed uh, lo- um, Laurie Goldstein. Did you see that June 30th uh, yes. editorial he did? Yes, good intentions. Good intentions gone astray. And uh, I agree with a lot of what I read in that. Yet, uh, when compared to other countries around the world, Canada looks great, doesn't it? Well, it does, actually, yes. And for that reason alone, though, that's, that's not a reason to celebrate, I think. T- to say it's great to live in Canada where we only get taxed half our lives away because they tax away 65% <laughs> of somebody's life in another country is not a point of national pride. I'm sorry. No,
3: we look now, good despite all of our failings. Uh, yes. Not and because of... The,
4: uh, and because of the character of the country which was built over 200 years of freedom, even though we weren't a country for 200 years yet. Mm-hmm. But I include... you know, I, I see Canada and the U.S. basically as cousins. I mean, they, we, we all have... I have a common heritage in a, in a very real way, going back to our disagreements and agreements with the British. But, uh, you know, I think like all collectivist nations, Canada's falling into the trap of becoming a nation of competing interests, not health economic competition, but political interests, all vying, you know, to get something for nothing out of the political system. And I think we're never going to get rid of the tax situation as long as people believe that they're entitled, and I mean entitled to certain government services, be it health care or education. I know people think that uh, universal health care is great, but all it means is single payer. It just means that the health care system isn't getting the money it needs. And there will never be any relief from higher taxes and eventual poverty for the vast majority of Canadian citizens as long as we keep one thing and one thing only, and that's socialized health care. It takes up more than 100% of Ontario's income tax, and it did from the day it came in, and it's always been in crisis spending. And then you have a, a situation here on the municipal level, the same mentality. You, you hear mayoralty candidate Joe Fontana, he wants to freeze taxes without cutting spending, without cutting mun- municipal services. And of all people, Joni Bachelor comes out co- correctly stating that in order to freeze taxes, you've got to cut spending. So I'm sitting there thinking, yeah, good idea, let's cut spending. Not one person suggested it. Not a person in the media, not a person from the public. They all just, you know, I hate this tax, but boy, they sure do. Oh, and a lot of them even went out of their way to say, if I knew it was going to health care, I wouldn't mind it. So, you know, what what are we going to do? you really can't do much. Is a 0% tax increase possible? I would say yes. It's been done in London before, right, Robert? Yes, it has. With the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition, of which you and I were both executive members. And Jim Montag, yes. And Jim Montag uh, led us, and we had zero tax increases for four years in this city, and uh, years later, we were being blamed for the city's problems today. Like, (laughs) like it's our fault. They just kept spending. I think they need to stop spending on entertainment, on green programs, throw them into the landfill sites where they all belong uh the provision of electricity and power has got to be taken out of the hands of the government my goodness we're heading into a trap with that so if you think the hst is something just wait till the ultimate hydro bill arrives and i remember freedom party warned way back in 1986 we're in for a shock (laughs) with ontario hydro so with regards to citizen attitudes and expectations of governments i don't really think anything has changed a lot in the last 20 30 years robert
3: how about you? No, I think that it's been a steady decline, um, politically especially, and uh, financially for everybody. Uh, it's just a steady, gradual decline. If you compare today with several uh, years ago, decades ago, even at the founding of the country, there was, there was something back then that I think that we're losing. Uh, there's still remnants of it, and that's what makes us a great country. But uh, we're losing it. You know I almost think it's a bit of an insult to injury to, to, to bring in the HST today of all days as if to remind us this is what Canada is about. That's another <laughs> thing about Canada day that got me thinking is how do people define Canada? And when you ask a lot of people as um, Michael Moore did on his uh, uh, show on, on guns, he's basically people were saying, no what defines us is our health care system. Yes or the CBC or a host of other socialist programs that didn't even exist when canada was founded not for decades and decades so so what was canada before that obviously canada didn't exist in his mind didn't even know about it canada (laughs) is not those things at all it is a it is a collection of our culture and it is a collection of our traditions
4: well let's leave it there let's take a quick break for a smile and when we come back we're going to hear some what bad news about the g20
3: interesting observations on the g20 i think okay well i'm looking forward to that Stay tuned.
2: Uh, Let me just say it's an honor to be here tonight to help celebrate Canadian culture and identity, uh, whatever that is. You know, because we have such a rich culture, a multicultural mosaic of yellows, browns, blacks and whites. And I'm assuming they chose me to talk about this tonight because, you know, I look smart. how did this mosaic come to be? Like, as you know here, uh, Canada wanted to settle the West, so started giving away free land to Ukrainians, Germans, Scandinavians, Russians, any European willing to come over to farm the prairies. In fact, our government put up posters in Europe advertising free homesteads, rich, fertile, warm, <laughs> warm. Apparently Canadians have always had a sense of humor. <laughs> Imagine- Can you imagine packing up your family, crossing the Atlantic to land in Winnipeg in February? You better have a witty anecdote for the (laughs) missus. And we were giving it away for free. America marketed itself as a land of the free. We were land for free.
5: I get questions from the audience all the time, and the most challenging question I ever received from an audience member was, where did we come from? That's all that was on the piece of paper the usher handed me, where did we come from? Fortunately, I'd just taken a ginkgo pill, and I remembered. <laughs> the story of where we came from begins when all that we call Canada was sitting under tons and tons of ice. But even though there was all that ice, there was no hockey. because nature had not provided the essential ingredient Zamboni drivers <laughs> but at that time on the other side of the world along the banks of the Omo river in Africa the first humans were emerging the very first human was short had thick lips, a sloping head and fuzzy hair he looked exactly like Mel, the former mayor of Toronto <laughs> as time went by this. This first human discovered that he had a grip and he could hold things. And one day, he held a big piece of wood way up in the air and brought it down on the head of another early man. In that moment, hockey was born. <laughs>
3: and welcome back to uh, Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Uh, it was Dave Broadfoot, always a funny guy. So, to get back to our um, discussion, Bob, Oh, before I begin, uh, you can always call in here to the show at 519-661-3600. And to get back to what we were talking about on Canada Day, we, Canada was the host of many of the world's leaders at the G20 on the past weekend, and... Um, I was not long, to notice. <laughs> not to notice, yeah. <laughs> Though living in London, you could have gone without noticing it. But if you're reading the papers or watching mm-hmm. the TV or on the Internet, it was replete with... Uh, uh, reports from what was going on there and and i i was madly clipping away the newspapers i'm more of a newspaper guy than anything else and i'm madly cl- clipping away the newspapers reading the articles and to see what the observations were of the, of the media and of the uh, the rabble that was out there and i've come up with a few observations conclusions and um i'd like to just share them with you yeah. today and first of all i guess the first part i'll talk about is the most obvious part which was the violence and um not only did we see violence we, uh, we came to come to expect from the left but we saw an exceptional amount of violence and deceit incompetence and even rights violations from the police and the mcginty government uh, to begin with the protesters it well, was still the left <laughs> <laughs> to begin with the protesters it was interesting to see the makeup of the rabble and, and we had a good eyewitness account from john thompson of the mckenzie institute who was a guest here mm-hmm. uh, was that last week I can't... Was it
4: last two weeks ago, I think, Robert? <laughs> two weeks and ago? And, of course, he's with the Mackenzie Institute, which looks into violence and terrorism, and terrorism in Canada, yeah, and just made a presentation yeah. to the Ontario... Or Ontario, the Canadian, uh, Canadian Senate. Mm-hmm.
3: The week before he appeared here. Well, he sent us an email um, and described the following. I quote from the email. "Opsu and Kupi, uh, Kupi passed a lot of their flags out, mostly to students who don't seem to be union members. Greenpeace hauled in a number of children, but there were aging hippies, a plenty strewn through the march... Iranian communists, some honest-to-God Maoists, and plenty of other political fossils were shuffling along under banners of Marx and Engels, unquote. He also described a rather disgusting disruption of the ceremonial repatriation of a fallen Afghan, uh, Canadian Afghan soldier in Toronto by um, OCAP, the Ontario Coalition Against Poverty, and I found it interesting reading the Globe Mail today when, I think it was Christy Blatchford's column column, uh, where she talks uh, to chief blair in toronto of the police and um mentioning that it was the black Bloc who disrupted the repatriation ceremony of that uh, fallen canadian soldier when it was in fact um ontario coalition against poverty uh, i think that was a uh, john clark's old, uh, i'm telling you robert i haven't seen any evidence of anything mm. called the black block actually i want to get into that be Bob, because there, is, there, is, there, there is there's a definition of that and, okay. and i'll get into that for sure um but amongst the uh, yeah, th- that's what I'm going to talk about now. Amongst the thousands of malcontents were a, a few hundred black blocs, so-called. Now the black bloc are not necessarily a single organization, but a mix of like-minded fools who have taken lessons from the violence of past world meetings and employed the tactics. Of then the where, did most-
4: the, where did that where that. Title come from if it, if they didn't give Because no, they, they dress them. in black. It's as so simple as okay. that. Just like that.
3: Yeah, they've taken they've taken the uh, the tactics of most of those violent demonstrations from past G summits and um, other demonstrations uh, across the world for the past um, thirty years or so. And a black block is not a group; it's a tactic. They're called black block tactics. Oh, I see. And their are tactics for protests and marches, whereby individuals wear black clothing, scarves, ski masks, motorcycle helmets with padding or other face-concealing items and often carry some sort of shields and truncheons. The clothing is used to avoid being identified. And um, theoretically, it looks as if they were uh, one large mass promoting solidarity or creating the, lo- the illusion of a larger group. Um, one cohesive group when in fact they are not for example you can get all of those different groups that john thompson talked about the Maoists, the iranian communists the the greenpeace and all of those people they would have black bloc tactic members of their own and they're out there and they're milling about causing uh, violence and disruption so it's not a particular group at all it is a it's tactic. another word for thugs uh thugs yeah, yeah okay thugs <laughs> Make no mistake though Bob the type of people employing those black block tactics are dangerous people and responsible for great property damage and personal injury and they' are the reason there's a need for the massive security measures taken during these world meetings. Uh, such people should be dealt with very severely by the law and the courts and if caught and convicted they should do considerable jail time in my opinion. Unfortunately that's almost how many did never they catch the out of
4: the 900 people
3: they arrested? Over 1,000. Or how many, how many count, Black yeah. Block people did they catch out of that group? Well, they're not, they, did, they gave numbers of the t- kinds of arrests and the kinds of charges, but they did not distinguish people as being Black Block or w- what p- particular protests they were. So, um, But under John Thompson's uh, counting, there looked to be about 500 or so member- people who would fit that description. So a small portion, a small mm-hmm. portion of the entire Tens of thousands of people who showed up at the, uh, the protests. Um, now, on the other side, we have Dalton McGinty and Toronto Police Chief Bill Blair. On a request from Chief Blair, McGinty extended in secret the Provincial Public Works Protection Act to take in part um, the area inside the G20 barrier. Now, in this area, police would be given the power to ask for anyone's identity papers and to search anyone without cause or warrant. Chief Blair either mistakenly or intentionally announced that the act uh, applied to five meters outside the perimeter fence as well. Now, in today's article in the Globe Mail, he's saying that it was totally unintentional. It was a total mistake. Um, Partly what he did was only on the Friday. Now, this law was changed on June 2nd, but on the Friday morning where the protests started beginning, he googled the law glanced through it, saw the word five meters, and assumed that it meant outside the fence. That's pretty shoddy police work, if you ask me. (laughs) Especially when you're talking about violating people's rights. Well, on either side of the fence, I
4: don't see it as being justified, that type of behavior. I have to tell you I watched the whole when, when the police car was burning. I gave it about 6 minutes on TV and the whole thing looked staged to me. It just that looked was like another thing. it looked like Hollywood and I'm going, "Okay, uh, nobody was acting the way I thought they should. They left the car just burning and burning and burning
3: and just staring at it." Well, it turns yeah. out there was an article describing that particular scene where they said the police actually held back the fire trucks, which were which were there just standing or waiting and called in the media, allowing them to come in, take pictures, take their time, look at the burning cars, see how good we are, you know, at doing our job for a billion dollars. And then they finally put the fire out. So, yeah, in my estimation, Bob, I think it was staged as well. Not only perhaps... We're not sh- the only ones saying that. I've seen that same yep. word used in a few of the clippings that I, that I saw, and it just
4: looked awfully suspicious. There's another it.
3: article in today's paper as well talking about the police... Um, moving in on a a group of peaceful protesters outside of the detention center on the east side of Toronto. And um, the description is chilling, actually. Uh, People were just out there basically minding their own business, just more curiosity seekers than anything else. And then without any warning, the police just started moving in, beating them up, corralling them and arresting them.
4: I, I couldn't a peaceful believe peaceful protest, yes. apparently. Not only that, not just protesters, but people just working
3: in a district were being hauled away. Exactly, And uh, it's just stunning. Now, um, actually, on the afternoon of Friday, uh, Police Chief uh, Blair discovered that he was mistaken with that particular law extension and conveyed his mistake to his officers, but did not convey it to the media or anybody else. He left it up to them to assume that, no, we can uh, basically corral anybody we want outside that, um, outside that fence. So that, to me, is deceitful. Um, so what did McGinty do in all of this? Nothing. In fact, he praised Chief Blair for his actions, so it would appear that both McGinty and Chief Blair were complicit in a very clear violation of people's rights to a gross degree. Over 1,000 people were arrested, all told, and detained at the G20. And while certainly some of those deserved to be, the majority did not. People who lived in the area, as you say, Bob, were arrested while out walking their dogs or returning home from work. Remember, this, these are several blocks of a major city where a lot of people live and work. One journalist from the Guardian newspaper was beaten up by police from by one account, even though he identified himself properly and apparently offered no resistance. Many personal items, which were in no way a threat to peace, were confiscated by police. Just as a black block should be held to account for their actions, those few overzealous police should as well. Currently, when a police officer violates your rights, it usually mitigates, mitigates or dismisses any charges against you because the, mm. the evidence was gained <laughs> illegally. Now, I think that's not enough. When an officer of the law knowingly violates your rights, unlawfully detains you, steals your property, and beats you up, They should be arrested and brought before a judge, and if found guilty, they should face the appropriate sentencing up to and including time in prison and and dismissal from the force. And as for McGinty, we can only hope that the electorate holds him to account for his callous disregard for our rights.
4: Well, you know, force should be used at times. Oh, yes. How come they didn't yes. use it when they should have been using it on the right people? Yeah, the burning of that police car. Yeah, well, well, see, that's why I think it was... All Those state. police cars, actually, too. Uh, I, I saw John Snowblins' uh, article in the Free Press on June twenty-six. I actually had to really agree with what he said. He says, you know, today's protesters are no Gandhis or kings. That's for sure, right? He says, protest in this day and age seems like nothing more than a loosely connected group complaint. A complaint is a declaration that you are powerless. And a group... Of self-professed powerless people is not my idea of a fun of a fun crowd (laughs) you know Robert he just put into words what I have felt for 20 years about protests
3: that's John Snowblin that's pretty yeah
4: it's it's just um, yeah a bunch of losers getting together walking around with signs saying yeah we can't do anything about our problem we want you to know about it you know like wah children (laughs) yeah basically and he says, uh, the self-proclaimed leaders of the tourist protesters will not be confused with the great leaders of the past. They are not thoughtful, or decent, or particularly courageous. They are merely loud and obnoxious enough to find theirs 15 seconds of fame on the nightly freak section of the news. <laughs> <laughs> well said, Mr. Silver. I Snowball. thought that was pretty good. Yeah. Time for a break? Time for a break. Okay, we've got a break at the bottom of the hour, and we'll be back to continue the show after this.
0: of the North Pole and the states of America There's a country in the middle that is known as Canada Where the natives all are happy and the lakes are fresh and clean There is no unemployment and no one is mean In the summer there's no mosquitoes and the winters are never cold There is no clear-cut logging and no ozone hole Oh, Canada, your leaders are so swell In Canada, no one ever goes to hell No criminals or taxes, and visa never phones Elvis is alive in Moose Jaw, but we leave him alone We're in Canada, whose army is so strong in Canada, no one has to mow their lawn No waiting for the buses, no stepping in a line The banks are all non-profit and the dollar closed at 1999 99 That's American, you know, so shout Canada The ports are always fair, shout Canada Where mechanics never ever swear Oh, that's the rednecks and the hippies live in perfect harmony, growing wheat and marijuana together hydroponically. Nobody has been pimples, and the skies are all so clear. And when Jesus Christ comes back to earth, I know you'll be born here. The phone line's never busy, and you're never put on hold. Canada's a Tree carved entirely from gold. Oh, in Canada, everyone says please. In Canada, no one ever cuts the cheese. Oh, Canada, oh Canada, the country of love is the country for me. Canada starts with the C.
6: Pleasure to be practicing that dictate of our profession here in Winnipeg, the birthplace of that bona fide hero, Louis Riel. Huh? God love him. There he is. You cross that river in Saint Boniface, oh? I have to tell you, the bust of him looks a hell of a lot like Burton Cummings. <laughs> As we speak, the ghost of Louis is roaming the parking lot, Jimmy and Cars belonging to ancestors of Orangemen who laid his rebel spirit low. <laughs> Hail the rebel spirit, I say, huh? That's something you won't find etched over a parliamentary doorway in Ottawa. And why, people? Well, because our country was legislated into existence, folks by legal wizards, sons of privilege, hell-bent on political compromise and consensus, with such a deference for the British institutions, they to bronze the royal family's turds. Look at this wonderful paperweight I just received from Queen Victoria. <laughs> Not America, though. America was born in a smoke-and-fire revolution, wasn't it, huh? where cockeyed farmer sporting squirrel guns formed a people's militia and bled their green grass red from Bunker Hill to the siege of Yorkton on a messianic mission in pursuit of life, liberty, and happiness. Let me see that ass-waxin' Republican David Frum spin a sentence like that. <laughs> What did Canadians do though, Hey, Geez, we went to Charlottetown, signed a few papers, had some lobsters, got all liquored up and left. <laughs> Our birth was a benign and painless delivery, folks, facilitated by that soothing epidural status quo. America was born a crack baby that chewed off its mother's umbilical cord. <laughs> it's just my way of saying we're different.
3: And welcome, welcome back been, eh, Robert. Just <laughs> Robert? <laughs> I'm always joking on that joke. It was pretty good. No, uh, welcome back to Just Right. Um, I'm uh, Robert Vaughn here with Robert Metz, and uh, you can call us at 519 661 3600, or you can email us at feedback at org, or visit our website, justrightmedia.org, where you can find all of our shows for download. So, to get back to the G20, Bob, we're mm-hmm. talking about the violence. Now I want to talk about my impressions of the media labeling the protesters. One of the glaring oversights by the media, in my estimation, in the G20 protests was the incorrect labeling of them as anarchists. Well, thank you for bringing that up. Nobody has... I've, I've gone through a lot of articles, and I have yet to see this addressed. Now, Not that I'm in favor of anarchy. Just <laughs> but. No, no, nor I, nor I. And uh, while it is true that a few of the um, a few of them were anarchists, they at least they call themselves anarchists. For example, the Southern Ontario Anarchist Resistance. Apparently, they think of themselves as anarchists. But descriptions I've found for them clearly indicate that they're not. Nor are any of the other protesters. None of them. Some call themselves anarcho-communists, which in effect means communist and while it was the ideological intention of the communists to have a stateless and classless society they tried to achieve this bizarre goal by creating the biggest most brutal and deadliest state of them all the soviet union yeah under the hopes that it would wither away yeah wither away (laughs) (laughs) that's why i call it bizarre anarchy comes from the greek and means without ruler taken to its conclusion it means no state no authority lawless None of the groups that were identified as taking part in the G20 protests could be described as that. None of them. We have various unions, including Opsu and CUPE. The unions advocate a socialist state. They're anti-capitalists. Many prefer the, the mixed economy of constrained capitalism, which in actuality is socialism, and in particular, fascism. They advocate the confiscation of property and the redistribution of wealth by, guess what? The state. They're not anarchists. What's interesting, though, is maybe you could argue that some of those
4: actions do lead to a form of anarchy because eventually the state does collapse when it does that. Is that well, I, certain, I don't think that was the intention no, or the no, plan. No, no, that's
3: not the intention. It leads to violence. Yeah. It leads to brutality, and it probably leads to a bigger state, a more police state, not, not anarchy. So they're not anarchists. They use the courts and the state's institutions daily in their efforts to control their employers and take more from those who earn it and give it back to those who don't, or give it to those who don't members or supporters of greenpeace for example uh, or the other environmental groups were demonstrating their goal is not anarchy but the use of power of the state over business capitalism and the regulation of individual behavior you can't achieve these goals without authority power police and a state they're not anarchists. lots of government yeah the various other brands of uh, as john thompson identified Maoists, communists, and socialists demonstrating are far from anarchists in fact a powerful, authoritative state is essential for their causes. They need jackbooted thugs to impose their will on us, and while they may be against the police and the courts today, they are for the police and the courts when it comes time to enforce their laws and regulations on us. The anti-poverty groups and anti-homeless groups are advocating robber- robbing Peter to pay Paul. Once again, socialists, not anarchists none of them were anarchists so why would qmi the global mail even the national post incorrectly label the protesters as anarchists It is because to correctly label them would mean that they would have to try and explain how the goals of the protesters are the same goals of Dalton McGinty, Jack Layton, Sid Ryan, Stephen Harper, Barack Obama, David Suzuki, Al Gore, the media, and a host of millions like them. I'm glad you you put the media in there. Oh yeah. was a reflection in the mirror they're looking at. It's a pure irony that the protesters are protesting the same leaders who are actually implementing their anti-capitalist yeah, agenda it's uh, totally ironic i scanned and read hundreds but of you know what they do they, they, they think those people are capitalists uh, well do they i
4: wonder well they call them that right yeah because they're opposed to capitalism so i'm opposed to that
3: guy there even though he's a socialist like me i'll call him a capitalist they need something to rage yes. against so in, in my, my perusing of all these articles and, and online looking at all these videos and news reports of the G20 protests, I could not come up with a single one which correctly identified the protesters for what they were, left-wing, socialist, and even radical left. This is by design, I think, Bob. If the skinhead neo-Nazis protest, they're quickly labeled as right-wing. And where were they? I didn't see any there. Did you see any there? how come they weren't there? (laughs) When, in fact, Nazis are socialists, too. That's right. Do we soon forget what makes up the word Nazi? National socialism. It is always the left which is protesting. It is always the socialists who are violent. It is always the anti-capitalists who break the storefront windows and loot and burn. How often do we see the thousands of suit-and-tie businessmen and women team out of their office towers on Bay Street, take to the street with balaclavas on their faces, and beat people up with bats and smash their favorite Starbucks windows? Never! How often do we see shop owners and small businessmen who employ more people in this country than any other sector take to the streets in violence to denounce the banks and oil companies? Never! Because these people know that the institutions of this country are essentially are essential to creating wealth and prosperity and employment. It is only the left, Bob, the socialists and the anti-capitalists who are causing the grief we see at these meetings. And the sooner we identify the root cause of the trouble, the quicker we can deal with it. These aren't anarchists, and I'd like to know from the media why they continue to label them as such. They obviously have absolutely no idea what it means to be an anarchist. They have absolutely no idea what it means to be left to be socialist to be fascist to be communist they don't know the distinction
4: that's
3: that's been any paper i mean not
4: any paper but 99 percent of them cannot distinguish left from right they don't know left from right they don't and
3: know something they're part of it that's the problem they're part of the left they're looking upon themselves it's it's a sort of a uh a self-reflection when they see these protests out there Now,
4: now you know i'm not opposed to protesting
3: and i would like to Put it to people that if you want
4: to see productive protesting, you're listening to it on this show. That's right. That's why Robert and I are here. We do this for free. Nobody pays us. We come in here, we do this as volunteers. Why? Because we believe in the ideas that we're trying to promulgate. Now, you won't get a single idea out of any of those protesters that were in those streets, not a single one, except gimme gimme, that might be the most, about as far as it would go. Yep. And, uh, you you know, it really comes down to there's two types of people in the world, some who live at their own expense and some who want to live at the expense of others and force
3: them to do so, and that causes every conflict on the face of this planet. You know, the pen is mightier than the sword, they say. And this radio show and the books that are out there cause more change in society, some for the better, some for the worse, than any of those protests. It can go either (laughs) way, You can have a million people out there protesting. What about that million-man march in the, in the United States that time? What did that achieve, except well, a lot of press coverage? That might
4: be a good reason. I'm not saying you would never do that. Uh, you know, how many times have we ever protested in, in, a, in a march kind of thing? Maybe we did twice it few, in
3: 20 years. We did it a couple of times. Actually, our protests and, both times were to protest protesters' violence that's interesting that you say that but also, was, it was one la- was a teachers' strike down in st thomas right? where they closed the school and we went to, and had a counter-protest another time was when canada uh, post canada post the union thugs who were on strike trashed the office down on uh, york street and so the next day we went down and had a counter-protest against their violence and ours was peaceful, of course, yes, and, and we had a lot of short, support. And we, we just got done what we had to do with it. Yep.
4: But uh, certainly not an effective way of um, instigating any long-term kind of
3: change. No, and I think that the protesters out there, once they're clearly identified for who they are and what ideology they espouse, we can quickly deal with them intellectually, you know, honestly, mm-hmm. in the debating uh, you know with argument not with uh, truncheons and clubs and baseball bats and beer spray yeah not not exactly the canadian way is it <laughs> let's take
4: a quick break uh, i just wanted to point out yesterday i heard that the globe and mail i guess the day before was still doing a survey on what canada's symbol should be did you hear about that
3: yeah, that's an ongoing survey about yeah, you particular know, iconic Canadian just stuff. It
4: seems odd to me that, that Canadians, you know, if that we're even still talking about such things, says a lot about this country, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, what should our symbol be? We're still, like, inventing Canada as we, we go need along... need a
3: brand in today's paper they yeah. were talking about.
4: And I think that's what Brent Butt got into coming up in this next clip. We're going to take a break for a smile, and we'll be back right after this. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's uh,
1: excellent to be here. I, um... I was sitting around the other day, uh, not a huge shock to anybody, I was uh, watching TV, what? <laughs> and uh, I started thinking about national uh, symbols and about our, our national anthems, and I, you know, I really, it really sums up the differences, I mean, like the American national anthem right there, that whole thing, it is just so in your face, their whole national anthem, and it's all about the rockets uh, popping up in the sky and the bursting, wow, what a to-do! As my mother would say, what it to do? <laughs> Even our anthem is kind of like an afterthought, right? It's kind of like, oh, Canada, right. <laughs> yeah, Should write a song or something. <laughs> That's one of the problems of being Canadian. We don't really have those, uh, you know, real strong symbol images. I mean, we kind of do but not the same way the Americans do. They're so confident about theirs, you know? This is ours, and we're very iffy about all. Even the Maple Leaf, we're like, this is kind of Canadian, right? This the... we have this, it just fell. It just fell, can we, Did we just take this? One? We're very iffy about all <laughs> We just gotta come to grips with the fact that we don't really do uh, national symbols and icons very well in Canada. Not compared to the States, a giant marketing machine that they have, you know? We just, uh, we, like look at their national animal, the eagle, right? Sitting majestically high atop the tallest branch of a mighty oak tree. Now let your eyes drift down to the bottom of that tree. <laughs> See that wet rat not on that tree? That's ours. that you know here's Canada here's the States we're the world's longest undefended border right we're very culturally pretty similar we've been neighbors for hundreds of years and yet there are still words that we use that they don't right like please and thank you come to mind holy <laughs> dinah <laughs> you notice that but getting back to our national uh, animal the beaver I don't want to come across as, you know, I don't have anything against the beaver. God bless the little beaver, I got nothing against him, you know, he's industrious, he's uh, focused and motivated. He's, uh, I don't know, family-oriented. Must have some good qualities. I assume he's family-oriented, If you're 80% body fat with buck teeth, Know, you're, eh, you're gonna go fooling around in the misses? No, stay at home. Be thankful for what you got.
3: And welcome back to just right on chrw 94.9 <laughs> fm you can call us at 519-661-3600
4: so should we just be thankful for what we
3: got <laughs> I th- i'm glad you picked those clips bobs it sort of le- uh, you know, brings up the mood a little bit considering the domestic uh, well, topics we're talking about. it is but isn't there an interesting
4: tone to all of that type of humor whenever you hear canadians talk about canada in the u.s
3: rather self-deprecating uh, rather quite, quite a bit
4: humble kind of that kind of an attitude i get from it yeah like almost saying uh, yeah we're always picking number two like as if we're making these choices in, the, in a certain way because we're we've got a huge country beside us you mm-hmm.
3: know i think actually i think it's endearing in, in, in a sense because it's, well it's certainly part of the canadian identity uh, yeah, isn't true. it isn't it <laughs>
5: yeah.
3: so uh back to the g20 i mentioned before that it was sort of ironic that the left-wing protesters mm-hmm. are protesting the very leaders and institutions responsible for implementing their anti-capitalist agenda. Let's look at some of the conclusions of the G8 and the G20 to see this in action, Bob. I went to the websites of the G8 and G20 and got the actual documents, which By, by conclusions, you mean the agreements that came to? The agreements to, you know, they came to or didn't come to, the money that they want to spend, the goals that they wanted to achieve. Um, which, by the way, thankfully, a lot of times that they don't actually do. <laughs> no kidding. Yeah. So regarding wealth distribution and foreign aid, major planks in any socialist platform, at the conclusion of the G8 summit, Prime Minister Stephen Harper announced that the total Canadian contribution for paternal, newborn, and child health foreign aid will be $2.85 billion over five years. Thank you, Stephen Harper. For the environmentalists, Harper said, quote, Among environmental issues, climate change remains top of mind. We recognize the scientific view that the increase in global temperature should not exceed 2 degrees Celsius compared to pre-industrial levels. Achieving this goal requires deep cuts in global emissions. We strongly support the negotiations underway within the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change. We reiterate our support for Copenhagen. Now tell me, Bob, how does that... Differ in any way whatsoever from what the, the environmentalists are asking for. Not at all. Not at all. Stephen Harper, our leader, is, is an environmentalist. He is a left winger in that sense that he believes in climate change, first of all. So if the sun and that he thinks that we have to destroy our economy. So if we get sunspots, we sun we're in trouble in Canada, right? <laughs> he's he's actually out there trying my to prevent goodness. a natural phenomenon. Yeah, it's <laughs> two degrees warm. Yeah. Well, okay. Have have fun even measuring that. So, but my, my thesis is basically mm, that this yeah, guy yeah. is the front man for the environmentalists who are out there protesting him. Yep. Irony again. Yeah. Well, and by the way, conservatives
4: have always been the great champions of socialist programs. <laughs> I know you're going to be doing a whole show
3: on that sometime. No, as a matter of fact, um, no, you're absolutely right. On that. And I think it's because of conservatism, small c and large c, that we have socialism. Because of, I think that if socialism was allowed to, to run its course, it would fall under its own weight, as it did in the Soviet Union and other like places like Albania. True socialism cannot be sustained, but it's only through the, the measures of a conservative government which tries to rein it back in with some semblance of a mixed economy that we have perpetual socialism. Well, they just see themselves as
4: better better managers.
3: Better managers, That's yeah. We, we agree we're socialists, but we yeah. want to do it more efficiently. But anyway, I have a whole show to mm-hmm. do that on the, some other point. Now, with regards to the economy the socialists should be thrilled that Keynesian economics is alive and well and impoverishing us all. An article in the Globe Mail of yesterday by um, a report on business columnist and one-time Libertarian Party of Canada leader Neil Reynolds correctly points out that not one of the G20 leaders is a free marketer. They are all subscribed to the Keynesian delusion that governments can invest money more efficiently and more productively than people can. Qu- what's quote, funny
4: about that is all the protesters are, are
3: on a complete other page. Oh, we're protesting the free market in capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, so are the leaders. <laughs> yeah. Quoting from uh, Mr. Reynolds, none of the G20 countries has pledged to end deficits. None has pledged to reduce its national debt. All will rely mostly on economic growth and tax increases to do the lifting, however limited, that the Toronto consensus proposes, unquote. Now, even though Keynes himself, only weeks before his death, refuted his theories and longed for the invisible hand of Adam Smith to save Britain, we still see the world's nations clinging to the socialist ideal of government involvement in the economy. A true capitalist would advocate the complete and utter separation of the economy and the state and would see the G20 summit as yet another attempt by the socialist elite to redistribute wealth and thereby impoverish the world in doing so. Rather than protesting the G20, every single one of those left-wing socialist, anti-capitalist protesting fools out there should have gone to the summit and cheered on their beloved leaders and encouraged them to continue their march (laughs) to the left. I agree, Robert. Well said. (laughs) It had to be said, Bob, because I'm not seeing it out there in the newspapers. I'm not seeing it out there anywhere. Nobody's identifying these people. Nobody's bringing up the the issue, the issue which is ideology. What is the ideology of these protesters? What is the ideology of the media? What is the ideology of the G20 and G8 leaders? They're all the same. Mm -hmm. It is the same ideology. It is the same result. And when you continue doing the same thing, you're going to get the same result. So that's why nothing is changing. That's why if anything is changing, it's getting worse. Well, things are changing. That's, that's, that's just it. The burden gets higher.
4: The taxes keep going up. But people keep calling for more of it because there's a disconnect in the mind over things like free health care. Free health care blinds people to everything free around Free
3: anything blinds people. Well, free education. Particularly. Healthcare, particularly because it is so expensive, and
4: it's it, well, and why is that? <laughs> because of the free system again. Yeah. it, it, it all—it's it all, like you're on this. Uh merry-go-round. You can't get off until someone breaks the cycle and says, look, we got to do this the right way. There's nothing wrong with wanting to live in a country where you have a health care system. And by the way, the United States is very much this country, too. Uh, we, we think of, of the U.S. as being so different from Canada with health care. They have, Medicaid down they have there. Medicare. They've had these things for years. Every state has its own health care plan. Some of them are socialist. Some are fascist. Meaning that they force people like employers to provide it instead of Mm -hmm. uh, the state to provide it or something like that. Because the only difference between socialism and fascism is where the state force is applied. Uh, Fascism is applied against private ownership and private property. Socialism is ownership by the state and control, whereas fascism
3: is merely control. It is it is those simple definitions. I think that once the media and the people out there start to get their head around it and identify it, back bring it back down to its basic basic definitions of what these people. What is anarchism? What is socialism? What is fascism? What is communism? And then you'll be able to identify these um, these people for what they really are, and then the true debate can begin. I agree and
4: and that's where it started with me. I said, you know, wow, this is really not what I thought it was, you know. And if you're if you're looking at something and it's the wrong identity. And you don't know that a cat goes meow and a dog goes woof woof, you know. And you'll never reconcile anything between those two animals if you can't tell them apart. You don't have a starting point for discussion That's if you right. can't even define your terms. You know I remember back um, twenty years ago, I, I had the privilege of writing the forward to a book called "Only You Can Save Canada," which was written mm-hmm. by a South African immigrant to Canada named Bill Trench. And I remember in that book, uh, everything he basically said in that book has come to pass in some way, shape, or form. And I remember in my um, opening, I was talking about Canada being basically, you know, a self fulfilling tragedy, and we, it's up to us to turn it around, and that's why I think we can always turn it around, as long as we have a choice. Well, I think you and I have done our part today, Bob. That's it, it. doing that. Yeah, I think we've got to go. Time to go for this week, and we hope you'll join us again next week when we continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, you know what to do. Be right, act right, stay right, and be right back here. Into
0: color, color into black and white Under the clothes, Everything will be all-
1: I'm talking like it's all coming in, though, like we're just sitting here helplessly, and that's not, that's not true. We send, uh, well, I guess we don't send culture out, we send talent out, don't we? we? We send talent out into the world, so I'd like to sing you a little song about that. Without Canada, there'd be no Brian Adams, no Alanis Morissette, no Mitsu, no Pamela Anderson Lee, no Keanu Reeves. Shakespeare's Hamlet would never have said, dude. <laughs> Without Canada, there'd be no Jim Carrey, which means no Ace Ventura, Majestic, or Cable Guy. So to America and the world, from the bottom of our hearts, we sincerely apologize.